Hello, and welcome to the Lisa Congdon Sessions, a podcast for creative folks about living and working with more intention, curiosity, and joy. I'm your host, Lisa Congdon. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode two of the Lisa Congdon Sessions. Oh my gosh. Wow. So I had gum surgery today. I was super minor, but it is one of like three or four gum surgeries I'm going to have to have in the next six months. So they're breaking me in easy with the easy one. I feel pretty good. Got some stitches in my mouth, but, um, but here I am in front of the microphone. I want to say thank you to everyone who reached out to me after listening to episode one, including my mom, who I will mention at the end of this episode. Today's episode is all about owning your story. And as I mentioned in the first episode, I spent a lot of years stuffing my my story or my experience away in the crevices of my brain and my body. And then in my work in therapy, which I highly recommend, I began to pull that story out and not just accept it, but love it. Love my story, even the cringy, cringy things. And today I really truly recognize that every single thing that has happened in my life, whether it was something out of my control that happened to me or something awful in my life that I caused, and there are many, many, many examples of those things, all of my experience, all of it is what has made my life my life and what has led to this moment today. And in fact, much of the terrible stuff has led to the most beautiful stuff. I have the words terrible, beautiful tattooed on my right leg for that very reason. My friend Ade Hogue, who is a fellow illustrator and an insanely talented letterer, illustrated those words for me and I got them tattooed on my leg. And I'm forever reminded of the connection between the terrible and the beautiful. There's this quote by writer Cheryl Strayed, who has, by the way, such an incredible gift for putting into words all of the wisdom that she's gained in her experience of life. And she puts it this way, quote, whatever happens to you belongs to you. Make it yours. Feed it to yourself, even if it feels impossible to swallow. Let it nurture you because it will, end of quote. I want to unpack that sentiment today owning the entirety of your experience. And I don't mean just accepting it, but allowing it to nurture you. So the moment we become unafraid of our faults and accept that we are imperfect or forgive ourselves for our mistakes and use them as lessons, we are nurturing ourselves. And every time we gently and with support confront the trauma that lives in our bodies, we are nurturing ourselves. We can turn heartache into compassion and into love and empathy for others and ourselves. Empathy for yourself is always step one. And empathy for yourself always translates to empathy for others. Because when you can own your own messy imperfections and weird story, you can see and validate that messy imperfection, weird whatever in others, right? So one question, think about this for a second. Has anyone ever said to you, thank you for sharing that story or thank you for sharing that experience 
after you shared something painful or shared about a difficult experience. And that's because we appreciate it when people tell honest stories, because it, it isn't usually the, the easy, happy stuff that connects us. It can. And the more empathy we have and the more connection we have, the easier it is to embrace all of the experiences that people share with us. But it's more often the painful, shameful, embarrassing stuff that connects us because it's that stuff that we're the most ashamed of. And the minute somebody else is like, I had this thing happened to me today and it was terrible. That's really what connects us. Some people have great facility in being vulnerable. And for others, it's super awkward and painful. I teach creative entrepreneurship at a local art college, and I teach my students storytelling as an integral part of their business practice. And one student said to me the other day, this is so hard for me. I'm not comfortable being vulnerable. And she even said, I'm not here for therapy. And so I want to acknowledge that honoring and sharing your story openly, especially the uncomfortable parts, is lifelong work and is not necessarily comfortable for everyone. But I also want to say that the payoff is tremendous because vulnerability is necessary for true connection with others. Today, I want to talk a little bit about imposter syndrome. And the reason I want to talk about it is because it is something that plagued me for many years. And I know plagues a lot of other women out there, women in particular. And my suffering, I think that, you know, you can call it imposter syndrome, you can call it suffering was really caused directly from my relationship to my story. And I think this is true for a lot of people. I'm also going to engage in a little critical pedagogy here when I discuss the term imposter syndrome. So before I get into my own story of imposter syndrome, let's talk about what it is. Imposter syndrome or imposter phenomenon, as it was originally called, is a clinical term coined by two female psychologists who did a study in 1978 that was focused on high-achieving women. And they they studied high-achieving women and their attitudes about their success. And they found that, quote, despite outstanding academic and professional accomplishments, women who experience the imposter phenomenon persist in believing that they are really not bright and have fooled anyone who thinks otherwise, end of quote. And that, for me, was really the gist of it. People with imposter syndrome are convinced that they are frauds and that they do not deserve what they have achieved. And they usually attribute their success to luck. And to be clear, the concept of imposter syndrome is actually a bit problematic for a couple of reasons. And one of them is that the impact of systemic racism and classism and xenophobia and other biases were not taken into account when the study was done. Many groups were excluded, including women of color and women of various income levels and professional backgrounds. But for the lack of a better term for what I'm talking about here, and because it's so widely understood in popular culture, let's call it imposter syndrome, understanding that it's flawed, and use the definition to describe how I felt for many years. So When I began my illustration career back in 2007 at the age of 39, and for many years that followed, I was pretty plagued with feelings of not belonging in my industry. 
of not being good enough, of being too old, too unschooled, too self-taught, too much of an outsider, too uninteresting, too female in a male-dominated profession, too unworthy of attention. And while I loved making art, once I decided to make a career path out of it, I was sort of secretly terrified that the universe had made some mistake and that this ride I was on would eventually implode. And these feelings became more and more intense as I became more outwardly accomplished. And this is really at the heart of imposter syndrome is that the more accomplished you are outwardly, you know, by society's measures or metrics, the more you feel like you don't deserve it or that you got there by virtue of luck. So for me, you know, I'd get hired for a job or a commission or whatever, and I'd think they have made a mistake. Like, they didn't really mean to give this to me. They, they, they actually haven't seen my whole portfolio. So here's one example. So way back in like 2010 or so, an envelope arrived in the mail from the Contemporary Jewish Museum in San Francisco. And I almost didn't open it because I thought maybe it was like a fundraising mailer or something. It was one of those big like eight and a half by 11 mailers. Anyhow, it was an invitation to be in a group show at the museum later that year. And I remember saying to Clay, who's now my wife, I think they have the wrong Lisa Congdon. I mean, seriously, I, I thought that. I was terrified to write the email back to the curator accepting the invitation because I was afraid that once I did, they'd say like, oh, sorry, that was a mistake. We didn't actually mean to send you that letter. I mean, it's really funny to think about now and I chuckle. But I was legitimately anxious about that particular experience and also about many, many others for many years. Here's another example. Anytime someone would say to me, hey, your work reminds me of so-and-so's, instead of letting those comments roll off my back or take them as a compliment, which I think is how many of them were intended, I'd instead have a panic attack inside thinking like, oh, I was a total and original sham, right? And despite all of that, I continued to make work and put it out into the world. You know, I think that happens to a lot of people and they, they throw in the towel or they, they get so shame-filled that they stop doing what they're doing. But I, for one, am nothing if I am not tenacious and I do have a particular talent for feeling scared and simultaneously moving forward. But I was racked with almost constant anxiety underneath the surface about being exposed as a fake or called out for being completely untalented. This was something that I feared. It never actually happened, but, you know, it was my greatest fear. And the more known I became, the worse it got. So in 2016, actually, I gave the commencement address at Minneapolis College of Art and Design, so MCAD. And I was like, I remember like putting on the cap and gown, which they have you do. And walking down the procession with all of the professors and all of the graduates. And I was sort of simultaneously having a pinch me moment, you know, like, I can't believe this was happening. And at the same time feeling, oh my God, like, what the F am I doing on this stage? Like almost to the point of feeling shame. So can you imagine I'm on the stage giving a commencement address at a major art college to which I was invited by the president of the college, and I am feeling shame that I did not go to art college myself, or that somehow I don't really deserve to be there, or that people in the audience won't take me seriously. And this imposter syndrome persisted for quite some time, and really, I think was pretty quickly after that experience at MCAT on the stage, 
I realized it was needling at me so frequently that I needed to do something about it. I needed to do some work around it. I understood intellectually that my feelings were not a picture of reality. I was experiencing success. My business was growing. Opportunities were happening at a greater and greater rate. But emotionally, I questioned everything. So I began keeping a journal and I began to document all of the negative thinking I was having that made me feel like an imposter. And it's important to remember that most of this negative thinking is not anything I had ever really expressed out loud, probably not even to my wife. Like it was all very internal. I wanted people to think that I had confidence or that I believed in myself. I didn't want people to see that deep down inside I was terrified. And so writing these thoughts had a lot of power because I kind of got them out of my system. And they were really actually some of them hard to write down because I was admitting to these thoughts out loud for the first time. At the same time, it became very cathartic for me to write these very negative, unproductive thoughts. And then the next step was to begin to turn all of these statements inside out. And that was really where the work began for me. You know, as I mentioned earlier, I had tremendous fear that I was too old, too self-taught, and, you know, questioned my technical abilities and my voice constantly. So let's take, for example, this one thought that I would have, you know, like that I was too old, right? I was older than most illustrators at my level. But what if my experience as an older woman made my work and my business savvy stronger and not weaker, right? Like, what if? I was self-taught, but what if that meant I was wiser and freer and more creative, not less so? What if the fact that I was self-taught meant I made my own rules that set my work apart in an interesting way? And this one, bigger than all, what if all the stuff I was previously ashamed of actually accounted for my success? And the minute I began to shift the story and own my experience as valuable and advantageous, the more I began to relax and the more self-assured I felt. And then I began talking openly about my experience and learned that the feelings that those researchers identified as imposter syndrome were common, especially among women of my generation who were taught to stay quiet and not to shine, to sit in the background, right? I still have moments of feeling a bit of imposter syndrome. I am human, so insecurities creep into my psyche constantly. But I can honestly say I'm cured of imposter syndrome. I, I feel very strongly about that, and it's really due to the work that I did. And by the way, aging is such a gift because you begin to have perspective that is so valuable. And so now, mostly when I feel an episode coming on, I try to take a deep breath and, and pinch myself, you know, in the, in the good way and say, wow, this is really amazing that this is happening. Thank you, universe. Instead of going into that fear spiral, otherwise known as, I don't deserve this, right? Owning and valuing our experience, no matter how unconventional, is some of the most important work we can do. I can speak personally that it's been some of the most important work that I have done in my life. That said, I also believe we live in a culture that is quick to laud and instill confidence in men who do mediocre work and punish women for having confidence. 
having or not having confidence are actually both seen as problematic if you're a woman. If you don't have enough, you suffer from imposter syndrome. If you have too much, you're arrogant, right? I found and read this great article in Harvard Business Review entitled, Stop Telling Women They Have Imposter Syndrome. I subscribed to the Harvard Business Review and this article literally caught me in my tracks. And the authors ask an important question. Quote, what's less explored, they ask, is why imposter syndrome exists in the first place and what role workplace systems play in fostering and exacerbating it in women, end of quote. The term imposter syndrome tends to put the blame on women's insecurities as the problem, when in fact, for many women, especially women of color, and both the authors of this particular article are women of color, for whom the intersection of their race and gender often places them in a precarious position at work, right? In truth, they say, we don't belong because we were never supposed to belong. That is the patriarchy, that is white supremacy, which was designed for white men to be successful. They argue, and I agree, that we don't need to, quote, fix imposter syndrome, end of quote, but rather that industries and workplaces must instead do the work of creating a culture for women and people of color and other marginalized groups that address systemic bias and racism. Let me say this, my personal experience with and understanding of imposter syndrome is ever evolving, and that is, well, part of my story, right? And interestingly, to kick these, what I call stupid feelings of imposter syndromes to the curb, I had to reject society's worshiping of youth culture. I had to reject this notion that someone who went through academia has more legitimacy as an artist than I do. I had to face head on a number of my own beliefs, but also recognize that those are not just my beliefs. They are based on societal norms, on the patriarchy, on capitalism, etc. Owning your story is a process of loving and accepting the parts of your experience that are unconventional or not part of the patriarchy and the parts of your story that are dark and shameful or the parts that you were told to keep quiet when you were a kid. And it is also going deeper and understanding where those feelings of shame come from. You know, it might be your family or society or religion or a number of other factors. And the, the really wonderful thing about doing that kind of work, and by that work, I mean thinking about, writing about, talking about the parts of our story we have previously held shame about, is that not only is that work healing and liberating, and it is, that work also frees us up to be more creative, to experience more creativity and more, you know, the sort of free flow of creativity and innovation. The things we try the hardest to hide from others are usually the things that connect us most with others, whether it's fear, embarrassment, heartache, or sadness. I want you to think about your favorite book or your favorite piece of art for a moment. More than likely, you are connected to the story or the art because of something raw or vulnerable. Most comedians make us laugh because they tell us embarrassing stories about themselves. We laugh because we can relate. It's our humanity that connects us. And every human being is fallible. We all screw up. We all have the choice, of course, to take responsibility when we screw up. But it's that awkward stuff that is at the heart of our human experience. And the breadth 
of our human experience is fodder for our creativity. The more we accept, love, and own our imperfections and our story with all of its breadth and depth, the more our entire human experience will nurture our work as creative people. The more we accept and own our story, the more our entire human experience will nurture our work as creative people. Two days ago, I got an email from my mom. She had listened to my podcast. And if you listened, you know I I talked about her a little bit, especially in the beginning. And she let me know that some parts of my story were hard for her to hear. She gently acknowledged my truth and my truth-telling and also shared with me some memories she had of some of the same experiences that I shared. And for however awkward that conversation was, I guarantee our relationship going forward will be stronger because we both shared and tried to hear our respective personal truths, even when they didn't look the same as the other person. Your truth is your truth. Her truth is her truth, and they're both valid. May we all find deeper peace and expanding creativity in owning our stories. I hope you all have a great day. Thank you for listening. I included a link to my latest book, You Will Leave a Trail of Stars, in the show notes. I talk a lot about owning your story in that book, so if this episode resonated for you, you might enjoy it. I also included links to the 1978 imposter syndrome study and the article in Harvard Business Review that I referred to in this episode. Big thanks to Nick Lambert for the original music and to my amazing team at the CoLoop Podcast Network. Please subscribe to the Lisa Congdon Sessions on Apple Podcasts, and if you enjoy what you hear, leave me a review. I hope you'll join me for future episodes. Have a magical day, everyone.